Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to the second part of our little mini series called Essays on Carrie, where we are going through all of the essays in the anthology, Our Beloved Rebel Queen, which was edited by Linda Mizjuski and Tanya D. Zook. And we are here to talk about the second essay in this book, which is called Gatekeeping the Past, Fandom and the Gendered Cultural Memory of Star Wars by Philip Dominic Keitel. If you're new here, we're doing a miniature series uh, that probably will be sporadic. Of course, these two episodes are recording close together, but this is a book that we got and it is filled with essays on Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia, like Caitlin mentioned, and it is great. It's it's pretty much like an academic journal and they're essays that Caitlin and I wanted to incorporate into an episode at some point, but honestly couldn't really figure out a way to do that seamlessly. So we decided to just talk about it, each essay as it goes. And if you haven't read the essay, they're hard to get because they're in a book. It's okay. We're going to talk you through it and talk about the themes that come out of it. And hopefully that is a rich episode in itself. Um, And we're going to relate to it and talk about our own experiences and things like that. Personally, this essay, Gatekeeping the Past, Fandom and the Gendered Cultural Memory of Star Wars, when I read this a couple months ago when we got this book, I have to say it like sent me down a spiral. (laughs) Okay. First off, this essay feels very personal. There's a lot of things that I remember and there's actually a lot of like a, there's a through line through this that talks about the documentary series by Annalisa Felian, Looking for Leia, which we're actually, Caitlin and I are actually both in. And uh, then it talks about Carrie Fisher's um, memorial services and like fan made memorial services, which we were also a part of. Talks about podcasts, talks about history making. We're, we're going to get into all of that, but it felt very personal and it felt really like. Okay, so what are we doing here as Star Wars podcasters who are women? What's the point? Why Why are we here? <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, it's just very existential to me about what we're up against in a very, not up against, because I don't really like that. What we're within, what we're mixing within of like a very male-centered and male-dominated fandom. And sometimes I think that Caitlin and I like to exist in our own little bubble where we're like staying on our path, living our truth. <laughs> and sometimes I just feel like this essay was a little bit of a reminder that like, oh, no, for like 40 plus years, this is how it's been. And things are changing, but this is how it's been. And perhaps this is how it will always be. And it was like, oh, OK, that's true. <laughs> I believe that. But it's the hard truth. OK, um, well, we're going to get into it. But I don't know if you had a similar experience, but I've been reeling from this essay for a couple months. <laughs> I uh, did not quite go into the existential crisis that you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say that like having this this essay kind of bookends talking about looking for Leia in the beginning and the end of this essay. And if you listen to our first episode about this called Who Owns Carrie Fisher, that was the name of the essay. It also kind of talks about looking for Leia, but it felt more uh, like on topic in this essay about gatekeeping the past. And 
yeah, that is something that's so personal for Charlotte and I. And because it was mentioned in this essay, I went back and was listening. We've had Annalise on our show twice, both in 2017, which was the first year of our podcast, and then in 2019, uh, literally days before The Rise of Skywalker came out and days before Looking for Leia premiered on the Sci-Fi Network. And like I was listening back to those episodes and in the 2019 one, we're asking her, like, how have things changed? How have you changed? How have we changed from who we were in 2017? Like, how fandom has changed for women since, you know, 2017, 2019, and now in 2022. And I can see the needle moving, but then I also have, like, so many more experiences of feeling slighted as a female fan. But then, like, the needle has moved. Like, I I also can't deny that either. You know what I mean? So it's been an interesting reflection process, I think, with this episode. (laughs) And, yeah, like Charlotte said, it it brought up a lot of memories and particularly thinking about, like, our first couple years of podcasting and, like, some of the things that happened to us during that time and like through the online space and also just experiences we've had in real life as female fans, like it felt very personal. And this essay kind of breaks down how, while not consciously intentional all the time, because I do think it's consciously intentional, um, like this is how the fandom, this is how Star Wars was created um, and the fandom that it has fostered in a lot of ways, consciously and unconsciously. And Mm -hmm. how do you navigate that when you don't fit into that box of a white straight dude (laughs) and it's not I don't know it's it's hard um to kind of think about all of that and what little piece like we play in our like small podcast Mm -hmm, totally before we really get started I wanted to do a bit more of an overview of the essay itself I'm not sure if we did this as well as we could have in the last essay on Carrie episode so maybe this will kind of ground what the essay is about overall Um, and the author gives a nice outline so I thought I would read that um, to hopefully kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about in this episode. So the author writes, this chapter analyzes how male fans have been acting as self-proclaimed gatekeepers of the past in order to claim ownership over the interpretive, interpretative control of the franchise. By putting Fisher's death and the resulting tributes and homages into the context of these fan practices and discourses, this chapter has three interrelated goals. First, it determines the importance of history making as a fan practice. The first section argues that fan-made histories ultimately shape what and how the past of Star Wars and its fan community is communicated within and beyond their respective fan communities. As is the case in all fan communities and practices, the creation and dissemination of knowledge about the past is highly hierarchized, giving women in the works discussed here little to no voice, resulting in a distorted view on female fandom. Second, it highlights the importance of action figures and other merchandise in fan-made Star Wars histories. Since many fans reached for toys when they produced their Fisher and Leia tributes, the second section shows that Star Wars and its toys are not only gendered by toy design, branding, and retail, but also by the nonfiction stories that fans tell with and about these toys. Third, Fisher and Leia homages help us understand how fans try to establish and position a collective memory of the actress, and the character that leaves little space for questioning the dynamics undergirding the hyper-masculine gendering of the franchise. 
Thus, the third section's analysis of action figure memorials demonstrates how some fans continue to strengthen such gender divides rather than to challenge them and how such dynamics function as a template when fans remembered Fisher and Leia and positioned the actress and the character into a male-centric history of Star Wars. End quote. I know that was a lot, but it felt like a, a good, clear summary of some of the uh, main points that the author makes throughout this article. And hopefully it gives you a good idea about what and how our conversation will unfold. Yes. I think another thing going into this episode is, you know, it's talking a lot about straight, cisgendered male fans and their impact on fandom. And it is presented in a pretty negative light, honestly, about how they control the narrative and are often exclusionary towards everyone else. <laughs> and <laughs> while I, that's a very generalized statement, and in a lot of ways, it's very true, right? And we've experienced it. That's not to say that it is completely true. And obviously, so many of the people, so many of the men that are in our fandom community are not like that at all. But as this article stresses, the loudest voices can sometimes be the most negative and the most exclusionary. And often they are men. (laughs) Um, But that is not... I don't want to paint everyone with that brushstroke, just like I would not like to be painted with one singular brushstroke to represent all women in Star Wars because that's not reality either. So um, I feel like when we go through this conversation, Charlotte and I will have a lot of emotional memories about how we felt treated by um, by older men in the fandom when we were younger and even in the early years of our podcasting space. And I know that that will come through, but I also just want to say that that's not the entire truth either. And I don't, I don't want to not say that either. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And everyone's experience is a little different. And I know that there's been so much change that has happened in the Star Wars fandom that perhaps, yeah. So this is just very, very high level in terms of the way I feel like this, like you're right. Like this article is very high level in the way that it talks about the differences in, um, the way the gender approaches Star Wars and definitely has in the past. And some of that comes from a really generalized experience that like might not be your own experience and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And yeah, there's the other side of that too, is there's obviously a lot of privilege for us as white straight women in that conversation too. So uh, layer upon layer and (laughs) also want to acknowledge that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should also tell everyone that we're recording quote unquote early in the morning, which is kind of rare for us. We don't usually record in the morning. (laughs) We're usually like (laughs) 6, 7 p.m. recorders. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. And last, we were going to record this the night before and we're like, you know what? Like we kind of want to sit with it a little more. What if we did like a cute like morning record? Like let's get some iced coffees. Let's record in the morning. And we're like, yeah, yeah that's what that we're sounds, doing. That sounds aesthetic, right? That sounds picturesque. <laughs> and it, honestly, it is. Like, yeah, it's it nice is. to record in the daylight and, like, with the iced coffee and everything. But my brain just, like, I don't know if it's fully there yet. Maybe <laughs> that we need, like, an hour and then the coffee will fully sit, like, per- start to percolate in my brain. But uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll, okay, get, so, we'll get through it. <laughs> yeah. Please forgive me if I'm tripping over my words and also the cliches that come with 
don't talk to me until I've had my coffee kind of vibe. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to be here. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Charlotte. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this essay. Let's dive in. So gatekeeping the past fandom and the gendered cultural memory is kind of split up into three separate parts. It talks about first, let's go through it. First, it talks about history making as a process, which Caitlin, I thought you would find super interesting. Is that true? Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. <laughs> Can't get yeah. did, did you, had you had any familiarity with these terms that are kind of thrown around in this essay? Not with these particular terms. And so much of what I deal with a lot is academic history. Um, and well, I'm, that feels like it's coming out of nowhere, but the terms, this book talks about like self like fan-made history, basically. And I feel like that's something actually you and I have talked about before, like how things are remembered in an online fandom world. But they actually put like more academic terms to it um, in this essay. Uh, they call it particip participatory historical culture in which knowledge about the past is formed and communicated outside academia and educational institutions. The concept of participatory historical culture refers to various practices located outside academic structures and also often norms, ranging from the production of media by amateurs to conversations about the past over dinner. Despite this inclusive definition of history making as a common cultural practice, the form and format of how people engage with the past matters as it ultimately results in new forms of institutionalization and hierarchization. And we'll talk about that more, but... After participatory historical culture, they talk about, the essay talks about communicative memory. And communicative memory is social and informally shared personal interactions in everyday life by non-specialists. Cultural memory represents a form of institutionalization that is formalized and communicated by specialists and exists in disembodied form and does not rely on personal interactions. And I feel like that's a lot to break down, but I think what it comes down to is like if you're in the Star Wars community, that is participatory historical culture and communicative memory. That like that's what it is. What we're doing here is participatory historical culture. And mm -hmm. we like position ourselves. You guys have heard Charlotte and I say this all the time that like we want to be credible sources in the Star Wars fandom about like analysis and just like even like the history of Star Wars and things like that. But I don't think academia would refer to us as like specialists. You know what I mean? And like we're all a part of this like in the fandom community of participatory historical culture. And yeah, I did find it really interesting. It's something it's something to kind of think more about. And I think this is what you were saying, Charlotte, earlier about like how, like, what is the point of all of it? <laughs> because participatory historical culture and communicative memory, what this essay is arguing is that even though that type of history making isn't constrained to like academia and educational institutions, which can be, you know, very exclusive clubs like the ivory tower, right? It's hard to get into, hard to stay in, and it's not very diverse for a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, so even though something like fandom culture can feel much more inclusive and open, and in so many ways it is, um, there is still what happens is, as the um, quote says, there is still ins institutionalization and hierarchies that are created. And how we see that in fan culture, right, is, you know, who are the people getting the opportunities within fan culture? In a lot of ways, it's white people like us. And then after that, it's white men. 
you know? And there becomes that hierarchy within this, you know, quote unquote, non-academic history making. And it's so interesting. And, And this essay like really goes through how marketing and toys and action figures and all of that from the very beginning creates this institution and this hierarchy within fan culture organically. And, you know, in a lot of ways, what I was said earlier, like that unconscious, conscious uh, community making. And yeah, it's hard to explain. And it's something that I'm still kind of letting simmer, I think, in my head and the ways that I participate in that, the ways that I push back against that and the ways that I, you know, am privileged by that. Um, It's, yeah, it's interesting to think about when you're in the middle of it. And I think that's what you were also talking about, Charlotte, earlier too, is like, this isn't something in the past. (laughs) This is something that's active and is actively being created. And now that we're five years in, I have like, which I think is a long time in fandom standards, right? I'm like in an active online community. I have memories of the way that things have gotten better, the way that things have not changed, the way that I have got better and the ways that I still need to change in the future too, as someone who is active in this community and active in producing media um, about the history of our community and of our fandom. And anyway, that was a bit of a monologue, but Something just to relate back to the title of this essay, which is Gatekeeping the Past. I think that if we think about perhaps what we are doing on the podcast is forming a cultural memory of uh, our own experiences within Star Wars. What the essay argues is that the past, the past 40 years of Star Wars fandom history has been gatekept by one singular identity, which is the male, cis, white identity. And I think that it's interesting, all the examples that go into it. And Caitlin is totally right in that this is where it gets very active. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, So we really are all participating in this. And I just really like this breakdown because I think so much of fandom history, if you're an active listener of like podcasts or like actively on fan sites, sometimes you can be like, okay, so this is, this is great because this is a hard copy so many times of like a collective memory that some of these hosts have, that some people who write in have. And like, this is important. This is important for us to have because it's hard to kind of um, string all of these events that happen in the Star Wars fandom and Star Wars history together that isn't just like a book that we have on the shelf, which we do have those, right? (laughs) Um, It's different. It's different when we talk about our own personal experiences and those matter as well. And um, I think that one of those reasons why I think this feels so personal is like, I feel like when we talk about cultural memory with Star Wars, the podcasting space, especially the podcasting space with multiple identities within it is fairly new, right? Like I think that that voice that people have and this was this was pretty much traced in looking for Leia, I think pretty well about all the different ways that people of different identities uh experienced fandom and fandom culture that often went unseen. And I think a lot of that is changing now because of the internet, right? Like I don't think we can deny that. And like that's what I think you were referring to, Caitlin. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like how things have changed and how things have progressed. Like that's a really yeah. good example of how things have progressed. Because in looking for Leia specifically, 
maybe with the fanzine episode, which I f- still find like so fascinating. Fanzines were passed along with friends, maybe sourced at some sci-fi conventions, but it's a, it was a small pool. It was it had it made a, obviously made a cultural impact, right? But it's a small pool and isn't what is remembered in terms of the history of Star Wars. And I want to um, kind of bring in this quote from J.J. Abrams (laughs) that uh, enrages me. (laughs) So (laughs) here we go. Female fans expressed their discontent after J.J. Abrams explained that, quote, Star Wars was always a boy's thing and a movie that dads take their sons to, end quote, and expresses his hopes that even though, quote, that is still very much the case, he was really hoping that The Force Awakens could be a movie that mothers can take their daughters to as well. End quote. While tweets may challenge the masculine grip on the franchise, the attention they get is relatively short-lived in comparison to the institutionalized and formalized communication channels that male fans have built in the privilege of their own memories. That kind of sums it up. <laughs> um, do you remember this quote? Yeah. When this happened? Yeah. yeah. I had, like categorically blocked it from my mind and then yeah. I read it in here and I was like, oh, wow, that I remember that and feeling so terrible reading it right. because like that's not our story that's not like no your, it's like the opposite of our story. your mom showed you it and like you as a 13 year old girl introduced me to star wars and yeah and i was like this is the worst <laughs> this is the worst and we talked about this in our uh, who owns carrie fisher episode the last uh, essay um in this book about um you know it's like oh like throwing a dog a bell like look here's your strong female lead of ray yeah you finally got it and then you it's did like it. yeah yeah you did it because like yeah it's like a boy's thing and like now it can be a girl's thing and uh yeah here it is here's here's your thing and it's like no, why does it have to be like that yeah why and it's because of these that? institutionalized cultural memory right that yeah. like exists for so long yet so the past is fully gatekept and it goes all the way to the top (laughs) with the director of the first sequel trilogy film and I actually think that JJ might have apologized for this it's not included in this essay but that's my memory of the situation that he he did yeah I think I'm pretty sure he did and I think we should acknowledge that he apologized for that and recognize that like, oof, that was a weird thing to slip up on. But even the fact that you could slip up on something like this really takes a hold into how deeply rooted the concept of Star Wars as a boy's thing is. Yeah. And when you say Star Wars as a boy's thing, it's just, it is so limiting. It's just, it feels so, you're right. Because like, this wasn't our story. That is not our story at all. Like literally the opposite of it. Yeah. And like I, the, you know, these aren't related, right? Like JJ Abrams saying sorrows is a boys thing, but like very early on in our podcasting journey, there was the hashtag hashtag Star Wars is a girl girls thing that, you know, was a couple years later, but the, you can't help but connect them with the, with the wording. You know what I mean? That happened actually because of a reply to a tweet of ours from the podcast about someone said that Star Wars was a boys thing like a weird trolley account and it sort of blew up Mark Hamill got involved that was crazy uh and it's just it's interesting though that you bring that up because that was a couple years later that was like two years later and so this is still a conversation that happens 
even today, I guess, of making sure that Star Wars isn't just a boys thing. Yeah. And not to interrupt you, Charlotte, but I guess to kind of put some context on what this thing was that happened back then. This is, what do we say, 2017. Um, just some people might not have context, not that they necessarily need to have context for this, but it might be helpful. <laughs> um, I don't remember what our original tweet had been, but like you said, Charlotte, someone had responded back, you know, something trolly like Star Wars is for boys. It's always been for boys, something to that effect. And I think we had responded back on the account, you know, obviously we're two girls and we love Star Wars and we're here and we're not going anywhere. And you know, that Star Wars is for girls too. And uh, yeah, it kind of that tweet kind of blew up, and then so then some other people in the Star Wars community decided to create this hashtag event, hashtag Star Wars is a girls thing, um, to kind of give spotlight to women in fandom, and that women had always been in fandom and were welcome in fandom, and so it was really great this kind of thing that developed organically within the community but became this like scheduled hashtag event um so it wasn't anything that we that like you or I had created or had like set out to do that day when we responded to that tweet it just kind of happened naturally after that but yeah it was it was it was crazy at the time I remember we we hadn't really had that kind of activity on the show before on the podcast twitter account before so it's definitely something that really sticks in my mind in my memory I think that something that we should also mention, and we mentioned this in the last episode too, is that sometimes I think these essays really stick along the binary of gender. And I find it difficult to talk about things when it comes to Star Wars is always a boy's thing when you want to talk about how Star Wars is more than just a boy's thing. And during that time, the hashtag was Star Wars is a girl's thing too. And if I could go back, I wish that we could have changed it. Star Wars is not a boy's thing or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, just to be more inclusive of all identities, because when we talk when we talk about these things, I just feel like this these essays sometimes really do participate on the binary of only cisgender experiences, and I want to acknowledge that. Yeah, they really do, and especially an essay like this that is a lot of focus is on toys for children and how that market is inherently incredibly gendered on the binary mm -hmm. of toys that are hyper masculine hyper feminine this is the boys toy aisle this is the girls toy aisle and yeah so the way that this essay talks about toys kind of automatically falls into those buckets but I wish that it did a better job of acknowledging that and being like this is this should not be every child's experience of you know only boys toys only girls toys you're not supposed to play with you know girls aren't supposed to play with boys toys and other you know the other way around but then also that shouldn't be everyone's experience in general uh, I do wish that these essays the ones that we've read so far have done a would do a better job of talking about that and acknowledging that and even acknowledging that it's hard to talk about that in something like a toy market that mm -hmm. hasn't even really begun to breach that subject yet totally. in the ways that they should have yeah I wish we could go back and change that hashtag too but I did just want to add on that through that hashtag and it, it gained a lot of popularity. Um, there were so many tweets at us about like how we looked, that we were losers, yeah. that um, we were single, lonely girls sitting in dark apartments by ourselves. Like I can, that's a quote, <laughs> like I can still quote it for you because 
I was single and I was living by myself. And I remember not a dark apartment though. Okay. No, not in it. Like the lights were on. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably like two in the afternoon. <laughs> like it's fine, but it's like for me, like living by myself. Like I remember that was the first year that I actually didn't have a roommate, and I was like, I love that lifestyle. <laughs> and someone <laughs> turned around and made it this like really negative thing, and and like I just remember like quote tweets coming in and just saying like really awful things like about how we were ugly how no one was listening to us how um men don't like girls that are into geek things and like this is this is probably one of the first times that like there had ever been that kind of level of activity on our twitter and uh-huh. while there was so many positive things right like the positivity was like overwhelming on something like that the those like type of quote treats, I can still see them so perfectly in my mind. And you read them and you're like, I don't want this to affect me, but it is. But like, I don't want to give someone that kind of power, but this doesn't feel good either. And like, God, like, and this, this was in 2017. And so like, I feel much more confident in my place as a woman in the Star Wars fandom now, but back then it was so hurtful and there's no, and like, I was, I was younger too. And I didn't really, I hadn't really been in, in online culture in that way before in online communities in that way before. And so many other people are still experiencing those kinds of things in 2022 when they're first getting into online communities and online fandom. And so while in a lot of ways I built a thicker skin and I mute a lot of words on Twitter, (laughs) other people don't know that. And and like this kind of participatory historical culture and participatory fandom and history making, like that was that was a really big event at the time when it happened. But like how many people who have come into fandom know about that event? Like, mm-hmm. should they know about it? Do they need to know about it? Like at the end of the day, it's a hashtag, right? Like I'm not trying to say that it's this it's not revolutionary it's not like no, thing. Yeah. But at the time it one, it felt like it, but also like it, it was trending for like a couple of days. Like we said, like there were celebrities who got involved. It wasn't just Mark Hamill. There were other people who were tweeting it. Like it was, it was big on Twitter for, for the yeah. time and for like 30 hours, you know what I mean? But I just think it's so interesting. Cause I think particularly for us, like thinking about Star Wars Twitter, which is where we're most involved um, outside of like the podcast, obviously, like it can feel like a relatively small community, but then there are these things that are not active memories for people in the way that they are for us and were seminal for us and how we view fandom. Like, even if that was just a hashtag, I think because of just our involvement in it, it kind of was a seminal thing for us um, specifically and like how we dealt with like sexism in the online world in kind of a wider spread way outside of, you know, the like the 50 people we would have considered like our community at that time. Right. It's really interesting, I think, because um, I want to also acknowledge that we've had experiences similar, like in the same vein that have happened to us in real life, too, along those lines that kind of catapulted why we'd feel like we should be involved in something like this. Anyway, I want to touch on something that you brought up about action figures and the importance of action figures, because this essay actually spends a lot of time talking about action figures and the lack of gender parity that comes with selling toys and how 
the essay actually acknowledges how the like the culture that exists or existed was even if there was a Princess Leia toy present in the toy box playing with the Princess Leia toy the essay has an acknowledgement that like if you are with if you are a group of boys playing in the toy box that perhaps if you were playing with the Princess Leia toy, you could potentially get made fun of. Like you shouldn't play with girls' toys. And that that was part of the culture. And how a lot of that comes from the like overly gendered fact that the toys that were made with Princess Leia were like dolls. And like they talk about making fun of how Princess Leia shouldn't be called an action figure. How ridiculous is that? Oh my gosh. The people doll. would even say that. Yeah, that they would say doll instead. The the concept of, and I just think that this should constantly be acknowledged because we actually talked about this in our last episode about essays on Carrie, but how big of a deal action figures and the toy market is to the history making of Star Wars. Again, it is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, about how merchandising shapes the cultural narrative of Star Wars. In the past 40 years, I think what this article is arguing is that the fact that between ads, between this cultural imprint that it has on you know, the gendered ways people and kids play influences how different genders can approach Star Wars today. And what the article is arguing is that that is a negative thing. In fact, it even talks about how um, in different blogs and different collectors archives, there's a lot of quotes that are pretty sexist about how the centering of the male experience when there were girls present who were clearly playing with different dolls, not just Princess Leia, right? Different Star Wars things, but they are sort of cast aside in the narrative. And one has to wonder, were they cast aside because they fully lost interest or were they cast aside because they were cast aside? Yeah. So there's even references to the blog, I Grew Up Star Wars. Um, I'll, re I'll read it. The blog, I Grew Up Star Wars, not only shows similar patterns in neglecting research on fangirls' perspective, but also exhibits how outright documentations of girls expressing their fandom are relegated. I Grew Up Star Wars features images of fans playing with their Star Wars toys and also the fans dressed up as their favorite characters. Often taken at Christmas, birthdays, and on Halloween, the blog photos give intimate insights into fans' private lives. The vast majority of these images are of boys in the 1970s and 1980s, while women and girls are mostly present as nameless grandmothers, mothers, sisters, or friends who, at first sight, are showing little to no interest in Star Wars. In some instances, the pictures document clear gender roles with girls holding dolls and plush cats while the boys are depicted with toys from the franchise. However, if we may attribute this to the documentation of specific interests in sibling dynamics, in other instances, images show girls dressed up in Star Wars characters, yet they still do not get mentioned in the image's captions. For instance, one image description reads, A motley crew indeed, Vader, Jake, and the rest of the Halloween lineup in 1982, completely ignoring, ignoring that there's a girl dressed up as Princess Leia in the picture. Granted, nobody remembers all of their... Nobody remembers all of their acquaintances from their childhood by name, yet it's interesting to see how the blog leans towards document documenting how it was to grow up with Star Wars for boys and not for girls. Only a few images capture shared fandom for Star Wars, such as an example of a man's recollection of his first Halloween with his sister after they saw A New Hope at the drive-in that shows her and a Leia and him in a Han Solo costume. Still, considering the overall 
Considering the overall few images of female fans on the blog, they can still be seen more as a reinforcement than a deconstruction to the perception that female fandom is possible in specific cases, but not the norm, or that grown-up women are less likely to be bothered posting pictures of themselves because their fandom has long vanished and is, has, and is of no meaning to them in the present. Ooh, I just, I find this really interesting because this is definitely an anecdotal, this is anecdotal, okay? I just want to acknowledge that, that this, the author like examines a blog and notices whether or not there are more boys than girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that this is worth mentioning because it feels, it doesn't feel small, but it feels like an experience that I think that you and I have been in before where we were like, oh, interesting, like looking at a blog, finding it interesting, which I'm sure that this documentation of growing up Star Wars is fascinating and I, I like the concept, okay? But it's true that there it feels like there is a lack of naming, a lack of experiencing, and I like the fact that this article talks about that there is no concept of deconstructing. And sometimes I think that <laughs> um, some and I'm not we're not like heart surgeons here on <laughs> with with creating this podcast like we're really just showing up as our full selves right sometimes I like to think that maybe we're part of that deconstructive narrative about this is how we have been and this is what we've participated in in fandom and if you don't like it then you can leave kind of vibes <laughs> but I also but I also know that like it's more than that or like it's less than that too it's not it's not changing like I said it's not we're not doing heart surgery here but um yeah I found this anecdotal uh example pretty interesting two of the anecdotes that I liked in this essay because I think the author does go through a lot of these like we were talking about like collectors anthologies and people who you know a lot of straight guys who are super into action figure collecting and how that a lot of that stems from their childhood and so when they are writing things about their collection memoirs, about their Star Wars fandom experience. It's so based from their perspective, obviously, but you glean these tidbits of, okay, this is how they are perceiving fandom. This is how, even from young boys, they were taught to and internalized how to perceive women and, and girls in the Star Wars experience and how action figures play a role in that. So this first one, uh, it's talking about an anecdote from Tony Pachiti. Tony Pachiti pushes the heterosexist objectification of Fisher and Leia even further by providing a more detailed description of Fisher's body in the memoir, My Best Friend is a Wookiee, when he recalls how he memorized every inch of Carrie Fisher's illustrated body on the covers of Star Wars and Jedi, her boobs lifted to kingdom come on the former and the obvious sultry pose in her metal slave bikini later. Moreover, the objectification of Fisher is propelled by homophobic descriptions, such as Pachetti's anecdote about a gay schoolmate whom he, quote, would have socked if he didn't think he would have looked he would have socked if he didn't think it would have looked like he was hitting a girl. And he was certainly brought up better than to hit a woman, regardless of any amount of stubble that may be showing from under his rouge. While Pachetti retells, quote, one boy's journey to find his place in the galaxy, his memories clearly exclude non-gender conforming boys from the galaxy far, far away. A pattern also evident in other projects in which gay men, if they address their sexual identity and voice their perspectives at all, usually do so in an asexual manner. They join straight fans in celebrating Leia as a heroine, but do not express any memories of sexual desire for the male cast. 
The second narrative trope is not directed toward Fisher, but to female fans whose fandom male authors recall as ephemeral and less likely to last into adulthood, which is what you were saying earlier, Charlotte, unlike their own experiences. Consider the following quotes from Jib Van Ert's autobiography, A Long Time Ago, Growing Up With and Out of Star Wars. Quote, I was ecstatic. My sister was also very pleased. But looking back and considering how her interest developed in later years, I think she liked these Kenner Star Wars toys, mainly because her big brother liked them and she liked him. His account of his sister's passion for Star Wars implies that it was not due to her own interest in the franchise, but rather because of her brother, a sort of fanish follower rather than a true fan. The idea of fangirls is something that he also questions in regard to his children and their likeliness to become fans. And then a couple um, sentences later, it kind of summarizes it by saying, the main point of the short chapter in Van Ert's autobiography seems to be the simple equation that boys like Harrison Ford and girls like Carrie Fisher, period. Such a gender bias evaluation stands for the predicament, predicament that a gap of diversity in Star Wars history has left. As long as fans do not include a more diverse set of voices more rigor- rigorously into the history of Star Wars, they will remain the rather vague and unspecific specific cases to which Van Ert refers to. And yeah, it's like, I, I probably should have brought this this particular anecdote up when we were talking about the J.J. Abrams quote about Star Wars is a boy thing and how that's not our story at all, right? Like, our whole introduction to Star Wars for both of us is through women, but that's anecdotal. And people look at something like that and say, oh, that's the exception, not the rule. And something like this quote from Van Ern about his little sister only liking Star Wars because she liked playing with her big brother um, is anecdotal and also just like it says, like she's not, she's a fan by association, not a real fan and doesn't even consider that maybe she was a, a real fan at the time and maybe she didn't feel like she had a place or maybe she did just grow out of it when she got older. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> even if you were a little girl who likes Star Wars, that doesn't mean you have to like it forever. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> and, yeah. But did you want to like it forever and just didn't feel like you could? Because we've talked mm-hmm. a ton about how we didn't feel like Star Wars was something we could talk about as young teenage girls in a larger setting. And that was absolutely a part of our experience. And if we hadn't grown up in the internet and with each other, would we still be fans the way we are now? I don't know. I think probably really not. Funny. Yeah, probably not, honestly. Um, and I, th- yeah, I think this essay, the, the bulk of it really is talking about how important like toys are in this discussion because of the role that they play in childhood and how that, uh, like there are two lives to an action figure that this essay talks about. There's its first life when it's a toy and then there's its second life where it's a collectible and how Leia as an action figure, as a toy, she very rarely lives that first life. She's usually always relegated to the second life as a collectible by a lot of men or publicly facing men in the Star Wars community who want to complete collections. And it's this is where it gets so complicated for me and like so enraging because it's like there aren't as many Leia action figures, um, like remembering about, you know, like the Rose Tico merchandise, right? And even Ray merchandise that we talked about in the last episode of her not even being included in the Monopoly set when she's literally the lead character um, and how frustrating that was. And it's like, 
so often like these these really extreme male communities who actively push against women and um, non-binary fans in Star Wars fandom, um, they will point to these types of things and say, look, like no one's buying that stuff. It's not available. No one wants it. Like that's why they're not making it. And it's like, no, it's it's all cyclical too. Like no one's buying it because they're not making it. And like, again, Ray's not even in the Monopoly set. Like you didn't even give her a chance to be <laughs> that kind of character. I, I'm laughing at the <laughs> Monopoly set thing because it, it so comes it's, back to the Monopoly set so much. So many times. <laughs> and yeah, the yeah. And I Monopoly is one of my favorite board games um, too. <laughs> so it's like, it's equally enraging on that front. Like I love, Mon- anyway, but there, <laughs> there's this quote that's included too. This is Kenner and Hasbro made 44 Leia figures between 1978 and 2012. 44. Compare this to Luke Skywalker, the most frequently reproduced figure who has 89 versions in the same period, including Leia. Hasbro has released 95 different female characters in total, in total, from across the (laughs) franchise, many of which have multiple versions and releases. Padme comes in at 26 varieties. So we're talking about progress, right? Let's spell this out. There are 95 between 1978 and 2012. There are 95 different female characters in total across the franchises. That's across the original and the second trilogy. 95. Mm -hmm. Almost 50% of those are Leia. And the other, what? I can't do math. 20% is Padme. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, I remember that. No one's That's buying how it them. Was. No one's buying them because <laughs> yeah. they don't like them. I'm like, you're not even giving it a chance. And um, furthermore, it's because the toy market is so gendered that and and you know, little boys are conditioned to think that they can only like things a certain way, and that little girls are conditioned to think that they can only like things a certain way. Mm-hmm that this problem exists. And I, one of the other things I wish this essay did better because it talks a lot about, right, like fan history and participatory culture, like how you, people like you and I were like part of writing the history of fandom, right. In addition to everyone else um, and how we should, you know, make, be pushing the needle ourselves, you know what I mean? Like as a fandom community, but I wish that this article did a better job of also putting the impetus on like the corporations and how Mm -hmm. they play a major role in this too. And, um, like, you know, like I said earlier, talking about progress to go from 44 figures of Leia to 26 of Padme to then completely excluding Rose Tico in the rise of Skywalker merchandise slash film all the while propping Kelly Marie Tran up, like sending her on this um, press tour, media tour for yeah. 76 seconds and, and like clearly putting her out there as, look, this is representation, but then nothing else reflects that. And that mm-hmm. that is such a stain on the Star Wars franchise, honestly, and like how that is building. And we can look at things like 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 us, right? Like who we are in twenty, who we were in twenty seventeen as a podcast. The opportunities we've had since then to twenty twenty two. I mean, we just got invited on the trip of a lifetime for free as women in the Star Wars podcasting community. Like that, it like that is a sign of recognition to a certain level. Mm-hmm. And like, I still don't understand how that happened. Like, I honestly mm-hmm. really don't. But like, someone said, "Oh, let's have these two girls come. These two women come to this event." And like, I think that means something and it didn't have to be us, but I I do think that means something when 
for so long, you and I and so many other women podcasters that we know have talked about how, like, who are these people getting opportunities like this to interview certain people, to go to certain events? Like, why does it feel like it's not diverse? Not that it feels like it's not diverse. It's not diverse. (laughs) And I do think that that has changed. But then you look at the toy market, which is where all of these conversations begin because all of these things happen. Like all these foundations are laid in childhood, right? And to go from 44 figures of Leia to 26 of Padme, when Padme is not even mentioned in the past like 10 years in in new Star Wars content, right? To then completely (laughs) excluding Rose from this narrative. Uh, anyway, that's my little soapbox right now. (laughs) Yeah. And also just to add on to the Rose thing, not only did Rose had an action figure. And if you remember the fandom menace spent time cutting her head off on YouTube on a YouTube live. So that was during the last Jedi time period. Like, um, action figures often take in toy, the toy market often takes center stage when talking about these things. And I think this article does a really good job of it. Another narrative trope of the other in Star Wars fandom is the fake geek girl. And I wanted to bring this up because this is something that we've been lauded at a ton of time. Okay. The third narrative trope is that of the fake geek girl who knows allegedly little to nothing about Star Wars and therefore cannot compete with male fans when it comes to fundament- fundamental comprehension of the franchise. Pachetti describes one female fan who challenges his authority as, quote, a bandwagoner, a girl, no less, who dares challenge him, attempts as a neophyte to sound like she knew what she was up to when she undeniably did not, end quote. His ideas about female fans is either that they do not know what they are talking about or that they identify as a Star Wars fan for the wrong reasons, an unreasonable, quote, swooning over the dashing Han Solo, while his passion for Leia is grounded in and evidence for a long-standing fandom. Such descriptions are in line with Suzanne Scott's observation that, quote, fan culture has expanded so dramatically, but women continue to be framed as an invasive and unwelcome presence, end quote. Through such autobiographical accounts, the idea of the fake geek girl actually becomes a seemingly historical grounded identity that continues to devalue fangirls in the present. Yeah, so this has happened to us a couple times. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're only in it because you like Kylo Ren. You're only in it because you like Anakin Skywalker. And um, that's not true. Sometimes those are things that we uh, grab onto as cornerstones and main points of our own fandom. But that doesn't mean that we're there only because of that. And if we were, it doesn't matter. So uh, I think bringing this up is important in the context of the toys because that's what the culture kind of breeds is like, oh, you must not be into it in the way that I'm into it. So therefore, you're not welcome. And that's what happens. And I think the article also identifies the fact that like it doesn't – something I think is interesting is that in the beginning of the article, the author talks about how the history makers of Star Wars have often been male. Like we're talking um, Rinsler. We're talking Stephen Sansweet. And all of that is true. Okay? That's true. The article does acknowledge that Lucasfilm has taken strides to sort of change that narrative from the inside. And – I sort of think that those should be acknowledged. I think that we've uh, we have made pro- progress there, and I mean it's true that Lucasfilm was run by a woman. And here's a quote: In December 2018, 11 out of the 23 contributors listed on StarWars.com were female. Moreover, Layla French from the Lucasfilm archives have curated ex- exhibitions, and Carol Teitelman, Deborah Call, and Trisha Bigar, among among others, have written Star Wars publications. 
I think we are aware about how much um, progress has been made in on the publication side of Star Wars. And I feel like that needs to be acknowledged. And often I feel like it doesn't get acknowledged that the publishing side of Star Wars continues to make strides in representation and also in being inclusive in all different identities and creating different voices of Star Wars stories that come from different people. And I think that is important and should be acknowledged. Yeah. And, and both, sorry to interrupt, but like both within like the who's writing the stories and also the characters that are being created within these yeah. stories. So I wanted to go back to that quote you said just a minute ago, Charlotte, about, um, you know, liking unreasonable swooning over the dashing Han Solo while a man's passion for Leia is grounded in and evidence for in longstanding fandom. And yeah, just to add on to it myself of the hypocrisy of something like that. Like we've been talking about in these two essays, the hypersexualization of Carrie Fisher of Princess Leia and how, you know, so many fans would come up to her talking about her as their sexual awakening and like what they did with her picture and how they memorized her body and stuff like that. And all of that is okay. But then, you know, in our corner of fandom, it can be like, oh, you just like Star Wars because you want to see like Adam Driver with a shirt off or seeing Hayden Christensen with a shirt off. And like that makes you that's shallow and that makes you not a true fan. And it's like, why is your attraction to a character valid and okay? But mine is not. And I think and this is where it's complicated, right? Because I think that that hypersexualization of Leia is not right in so many ways. And I would also say that like the hypersexualization of the male characters is not right, especially to the extent mm -hmm. that Carrie Fisher experienced it of men just feeling like they could say whatever they wanted about that hypersexualization to her face. And in a lot of ways, this is obviously I'm sure this has happened to the male cast of Star Wars, but I, I don't think that women tend to do that in the same way. Um, at least not in my experience. And I acknowledge that maybe that's not true, but it's different. And it's just, this is something that I struggle with so much of like fan spaces that are considered to be male dominated and fan spaces that are considered to be female dominated. Like you guys know, I'm a huge K-pop fan and a huge like fan of BTS. And people assume that a, a fandom community like that is all 14 year old girls, right? And that it is all like having intense knowledge about something like a boy group is shallow and vapid and a waste of time. But then like a man can come into a space like Star Wars and suddenly that knowledge is currency. And if you don't know enough, you need to get out. Like you're not the right kind of fan. But on the flip side, like if I can tell you the history of this boy group, that's ridiculous. But if I can tell you the history about Star Wars, maybe you'll listen to my show because like, I guess maybe you know something, you know what I mean? And like that has, that just like always enrages me, like the difference between those two fan groups and like those two experiences and how I've been told in both of them that I am not, I'm either shallow or I'm not like warranted. I don't know enough to be a good fan or I know too much and that's weird and that's creepy. And it's like, what, what do you want from me? <laughs> and I don't know what to do about it. Because like, furthermore, people don't have to be obsessive about a thing to be considered a fan of it either. You don't mm -hmm. have to know all of the things about a boy group or about a movie or about a book or about a franchise to be a fan of it. You can just like the movies and still call yourself a fan. You like, it doesn't have like, 
enjoyment doesn't have to be that deep. It can be, but there shouldn't be these like levels. And I know that that's ironic because like you and I and so many of our friends talk about like the litmus test when you meet people who say that they're Star Wars fans. And it's not like a litmus test and like, let me quiz you. It's just like, oh, are we at the same level? Like, are you obsessive? Like I'm obsessive or you just you call yourself a fan on like a different level. You know what I mean? It's not meant that conversation isn't meant to be like, oh, you don't know enough. It just means like I live and breathe this six hours a day. <laughs> so I consume everything. Ergo, my knowledge is going to be greater just because I give it more of my time throughout the day. But just because like I give it six hours and you give it 30 minutes doesn't mean that we're both not still enjoying the thing 100% of the time yeah. that we spend with it, you know? And I think that that so often gets lost in fan conversation and even acknowledging that people come into a fandom at different points in their lives. And this is a conversation we used to have a ton on the podcast and I feel like we don't talk about it as much anymore and I, w- I want to come back to it more in the future, but like where people, what their entryway is into Star Wars and how that's different for so many people. And like, you can't, if someone's like diving into Star Wars, there's there's 40 plus years of stuff to catch up on, you know? Yeah. And so like often it's it's easy to like flatten everyone's fandom experience online into this is what they they should know all these things. And it's like, hey, I've I've only been here for like a month. <laughs> I don't know all these <laughs> things. <laughs> but then like if you're a woman in that experience, so often people are like telling you like, well, you don't know this. You don't know that. Like, what are you doing here? Like, you like just wait until you read this thing. Then like you'll really get it. And it's like, no, I can get it now. And that'll just be a thing that I get to know later. You know, I don't know. And I feel like I've strayed from the plot here. But um, yeah, I just feel like there's so much hypocrisy in how men treat women in what they consider a, a, a boy's thing, right, to bring it back. And then how men treat women in something that is hashtag a girl's thing, like a boy group, when number one, that is not those fandoms at all. Like women and people of all identities have been in the Star Wars fandom from the very beginning. And something like Looking for Leia explores that. So it's that perception is wrong from the begin from the outset. And the same is true for, you know, things that are considered predominantly a woman's space. Who gets to be the loudest voice? And I think that's the overall thesis of this essay is whose voice gets to be the loudest the most often? And why is that? Right. In the conclusion of this essay, I thought that I would read this quote that sort of summarizes what you said in a way that sort of synthesizes everything that we've talked about. Fisher's death has encouraged many fangirls to look back at their fandom in the Star Wars franchise, and Annalise Ophelian's crowdfunded seven-part documentary series has pushed the boundaries of male-centric Star Wars histories. But as long as projects like Looking for Leia remain the exception rather than the nor- than the norm in terms of widely publicized projects on Star Wars history that give voice to how how many women have practiced their fandom over the last 40 years, the cultural memory of the Star Wars franchise remains dominated by men. As this chapter has argued, those fan histories who have have established themselves as the gatekeepers of the franchise past have been predominantly men whose heterosexist perspectives of the franchise have been primarily sidelining the perspectives of fangirls and minority voices. Action figures have played an important role in this process since the highly gendered toys have been the primary subject of many Star Wars histories and have functioned as a narrative device to structure autobiographical accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that is all very true. 
I also want to just bring it back a little bit in that in the discussion of to bring it back to Carrie Fisher and Carrie Fisher's own um, her death and everything that followed after that. I mentioned in that just that quote that Fisher's death has encouraged many fangirls to look back at their fandom and the Star Wars franchise. That is us. That is us. That is when we started Sky Talkers. It is like it's so crazy to me because that's even why Annalise really put looking for Leia into high gear as well. We talked about that on our show in that 2019 episode about how things changed and really felt so heated during that time period. And even on this last episode of Essays on Carrie, um, we also talked about that time period was particularly heated and reflective and um, how fangirls really wanted to be a part of the history. I think that even just to bring it back to Carrie Fisher's death and then uh, also the action figure of it all, it talks about how action figures and action figure memorials actually became (laughs) part of this conversation, which seems sort of dark in this like capitalistic sense, but it's, it's interesting. Here's a quote. The status of Leia action figures as collectibles rather than toys is also marked by speculation about the potential and actual spike of value in Leia merchandise after Fisher's death. For instance, one comment on the website for the hot toy Princess Leia figure reads as follows, quote, I've been collecting the Star Wars figures for a while, holding off on the Leia. I've ordered her when I heard of her. I ordered her when her health had taken a turn. Now it's sold out. People really loved her. R.I.P. I know. I know. Not only does the quote imply a previous disinterest in the character, but this particular commenter also mentions Leia's popularity by sales numbers instead of personal value. Fisher had predicted this development in her autobiographies, foreseeing that objects with her signature might become more valuable and therefore make her death at least, quote, worth something to some people. Some fans criticize such speculation, providing consultation on how to handle the current spike in prices, but also urging collectors not to forget to appreciate Carrie Fisher for who she was, an actress with a beautiful voice, a ferociously funny writer, and someone whose films still have left us with fantastic memories for almost four decades now. Still, through the immediate trading of Leia merchandise, some male fans and collectors presented themselves as rationally following the economic logics of collecting rather than engaging in overtly emotional statements. The toys were a catalyst for telling nostalgic stories about one's childhood, but they also capitalized on one's previous investment as a collector in Leia action figures as a commodity. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> let's let's remember how great of a person Carrie Fisher was. Shipping and handling is $3.99. It's so frustrating. Um, and the article is absolutely correct in that Carrie talked about this a lot. We talked about this in the last episode about how she even talked about um, the commodification of convention appearances and how she called it like a lap dance and things like that. <sighs> I That quote like also enrages me. I remember that as well. Um, and it's just proof how people talk about their experiences through purchases and monetary, like the monetary value of someone before and after their death. Like that is dark. That is so dark to me. And uh, I think that when we were experiencing that, it was a a particularly like a, like a watershed moment for you and I being like, this is a fandom that we need to be part of. Not because I think we have the chance to change it from the inside, but because our voice deserves to be a part of something so that this narrative that is pretty toxic doesn't fully take over or continue to fully take over that maybe we can try to change that 
And I, it feels a little futile when you read this, <laughs> I swear. But uh, I think that even if we didn't fully acknowledge it at that point, I think that's what we were doing. And so many of us were doing at this time period too, at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017, this like change into how do we actively participate in something that we care about so much? Because this is proof that we care about it so much. It is not just the action figures that I have, but it's the experiences that I have that are narrowly mine. And I want to be able to share this with someone else. Well, and that was our experience too of, oh, it feels like there aren't, like our voices aren't being represented, but we just didn't see them because they weren't the loudest voices when we were dipping our toes right. into fandom. And so, mm-hmm. and that that's something we've discussed before too, that we had this notion of what the the podcasting world looked like and it was wrong and it wasn't until we actually were involved ourselves that we understood that and we're like oh I just no one was telling me no one these voices these these other non-male voices were not being amplified at all um, to the extent that I even really knew how many there were before I got involved and yeah and then to touch on the action figure thing after her death, like this is not something that is reserved. None of this is reserved for Star Wars, right? Like this is uh, present in so many other fandoms and this, you know, the the price of a celebrity and the value of the things uh, like the the toys and stuff from them increasing in value after their death. That's nothing new, right? And I think the thing is, it's like, I think there is meaning in like using something like an action figure as a memorial for Leia. I think there is meaning and value in that because it, it does talk about how this meant something to me and like as a child and has followed me through life. And I think in the last essay, Carrie yeah. references like these types of things and like photos with her and her autograph and like these products as like talismans to connect you to a narrative that means something to you. And I don't want to say that that's not important because I absolutely think it is. But what I think this essay also argues is that like I we talked about before, there are two lives to an action figure. It's first life as a toy and it's second life as a collectible. And for Carrie, like that like nostalgic piece of that first life is more rare than its second life. So then what is its value as it relates to being in a, a, a memorial for Carrie Fisher when she did pass away unexpectedly? You know what I mean? Um, and that's like the struggle. And then the other complication of this is I don't want to collect action figures (laughs) as a female (laughs) fan. Like I don't want action figures in my, like it's not a thing I want in my star Wars collection. I don't. I didn't expect you to say that. (laughs) I I think it's funny how like this, this essay kind of sent you into a spiral. And for me, I came to at the end, like I get all of this, but like at the end of the day, I don't want to collect action figures. Like I don't want that to be my thing. And like as a female fan, that's really not something I'm honestly interested in at all. <laughs> and I know that that's, that's me because I know there are so many women who are interested in action figures and collectibles like that. But I just think it's funny because I want all of these things we've been talking about, like with the toy market to change so that it is not so gendered and hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine and that there are more female action figures out there and that there is more representation in general across the gender spectrum that is not just a boy and a girl action figure, right, of like these characters. Um, But at the end of the day, like that's not what I want out of Star Wars fandom anyway, but I want that for other people and I want there to be more for me too. And I don't know. It was just, it was kind of funny for me, honestly, at the end to be like, yeah, I want change, but 
am I going to participate in then being like a huge female collector? No, not of action figures. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was just kind of funny. I think you're a, you're a female collector. It's just not of action it's not, figures. It's not. Yeah, it's exactly. Your own, what you're interested in. That's how I feel as well. Exactly. I'm surrounded by stuffed animals that are Star Wars. <laughs> and uh, I have, you and I both, we have a hot toy type vibe of like a statue of Rey and Kylo. Like, like droids, we bought statues of our favorite female characters, Padme and Leia. Like we have those, but we also on my desk, I have our rainbow Boba Fett, which we bought because we thought it was cute. Not because (laughs) we love, we love Boba Fett, which actually like I do love Boba Fett, but we bought this before the show, (laughs) but the, (laughs) uh, we bought it because it's cool and like fun and different. Well, I I think like that conversation is something we talk in the fandom a lot about, about wanting things that are not so explicitly a part of that perceived male collectible community, right? Like I tweeted something snarky last year of like, I want no more new Funko Pops. Like, please give me something (laughs) new as an exclusive besides a Funko Pop, right? Like I just want there, I want there to be more diversity in all of the kinds of collectibles that are out there and all of the people that are making them and all of the, the, the characters that are represented in them, right? And I think ultimately, if this essay had gone a little further on that, that's where it would have ended up. But again, this is like 10 pages. It can't possibly address every single thing in the like the toy market and the marketing institution that is Star Wars. <laughs> um, so it yeah, is focusing exactly. here on action figures, which I understand, but spinning it out some more myself, it's like, yeah, I... I don't necessarily need to be a part of that market and like it can exist and I want to see strides in that market, but I want to see more creativity about the things that are being offered in general. And yeah, yeah I do want cute things <laughs> like stuffed animals. I feel like I and usually buy, exactly. I feel like we usually buy those things that are offered and sometimes I wonder like, do they do well? Yeah. But so much is of that is, is fan created too. It's not, yeah. so much of what we buy is not quote-unquote official merchandise you know what is corporate responsibility what is fan-made responsibility the fan community responsibility in these histories that are being told because then these histories are condensed into these talismans of objects and whether it is something like a action figure that has a whole slew of literature and documentation or you know something like the enamel pin world is huge and I would say is predominantly like a lot of women run pin making shops but like none of that is official so it doesn't have the same kind of archive in the way that action figures do yeah it's true yep (laughs) 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 I don't know it's it's hard to come to a conclusion I think with an episode like this with an essay like this and I think that there has been progress made since 2017, since 2019, and now. I think there has been progress made. Yeah, I do too. Just the very fact that we're still doing this and things like that, I yeah. think, is in itself progress. And a lot of different shows that are around us in the podcasting space are doing a lot to bridge this gap between our cultural history in the past versus now and how we are seeing Star Wars and discussing it. I think that there are so many voices in this fandom who are trying to maybe not inadvertently change the fandom, but it's happening. And I just really applaud that. I also think that Lucasfilm is taking strides. I think those strides are slow, but I think that things are 
are changing and happening from the inside. And I'm proud of that. I just, as someone who has been a Star Wars fan for almost 20 years, uh, like a big Star Wars fan for almost 20 years, things have changed so much. And that has to be acknowledged. Yeah. Like it, it, they have. And also I have changed so much. So that's also part of it is when you talk about your own personal fandom and things that you're interested in. I truly used to think that I would have to mold to um, perspectives and different um, and sort of just the male gaze of Star Wars. I don't feel that way at all anymore. And I'm, I feel like I am pretty committed to continuing the historiography of, of what our experience is like in Star Wars so that we can contribute to that cultural memory. Yeah. And, and also encourage that participatory fandom experience for a lot of people. Yeah. The, I, when I was listening back to Annalisa's episode with us, if you haven't listened to that episode or listened to it in a while, I love listening to Annalise. She just, the way that she talks about fandom experience, she puts it into words that we could never, honestly, and is perfectly succinct and clear in the challenges and the successes that have come. Definitely encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't before. But yeah, I think that there's, there is hope, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but she had said in that episode that it's like pushing a boulder up the mountain, right? And we're all kind of pushing it a little bit and it's going, it's getting up there, but it's not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we pushed it further in like all of us have pushed it further in the past couple of years, just like we pushed it further, you know, between 2017 and 2019. But well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Was there any last thoughts you wanted to include, Charlotte? No, not at all. I'm I'm really enjoying this sort of therapy session of <laughs> these essays on Carrie that we're going through. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed essays on Carrie part two. And yeah, I'm not sure when the next essay will be covered, but it'll come. Like we said, probably throughout the rest of the year, we'll go through the book when when we're emotionally ready to address the next essay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to give us your thoughts about it online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our TikTok page, our website, skytalkers.com, our Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on all of those social media platforms. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes or Spotify, we would really love it if you took a couple of seconds to go and do that. It helps other people find our show. And thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed us on both of those platforms already. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there and how to get involved in our Discord community. Yes, and I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, King, Kimberly, Suki, Paul, Shelby, Susan, Derek, Imbecilius, Sarah, Dylan, Aaron, Demi, Hunter, Allison, Timothy, Ashley, Josh, Brandon, Miss Art, Rebuild, Jordan, and Eunice. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.